BlockWorks is hosting its Digital Asset Summit in October. Over 800 institutions are attending, including FTX, UBS, Morgan Stanley, Coinbase, and the London Stock Exchange. To get a discount, use code GUIDANCE250, all caps, GUIDANCE250. I am joined by Ted Oakley, founder and managing partner of Oxbro Advisors. Ted, welcome to Forward Guidance. Thanks, Jack. Ted, tell us a little bit about what you do at Oxbro Advisors. I want to get into it, talk about stocks, bonds, the economy, everything. But what is your what do you do? What's your background and, and how do you go about analyzing assets? Are you top down, bottom up? Well, uh, what we do, you know, the way we really started many years ago is we started working all over the country and with people that sold companies because they, you know, get a lot of money and that's Still sort of what we, that's what we do today, a lot of that. But, uh, but our work goes, we, we do look at the macro top down, but most of the work we do is bottom up. I mean, we look at the companies, we look at the securities, look at the bonds. We don't do a lot of indexes or exchange traded funds or that kind of thing. I won't say we never do one, but it's rare. And so, uh, from our standpoint, we're old school in that. We, um, we run about three basic strategies that are, that are easy to understand and um, really believe in uh, you know, the, the, the value work. And so that's where we head from here. Okay. Uh, thanks for that, Ted. Let's wind the clock back a year to September of 2021, when I believe the asset prices were pretty close to their all-time highs. So you're in, uh, you look at macro, but it's not fundamental macro. You look a lot at uh, individual companies. When you were scouring the investment universe for companies, how many good value companies were, were you able to find where, hey, I can deploy cash now and I can generate a significant return because I'm buying a company at a discount to its intrinsic value, let's say. Um, what was it like in that environment? And what is it like now, now that asset prices have uh, fallen you know, close to 20% from that high? Well, a year ago, Jack, what was happening is you know, we have about a 200 stock universe that we, we would own or we'd like to own if we could. Are companies we like, but a year ago they were all overpriced, and it made us uh, start to from that point forward all the way up through really January we were raising cash more than normal uh, because we didn't it really wasn't anything for us to buy in in that slot, and so that's that's how that looked. Now as we came into this year, we've had the most cash we've had in um, many years actually, and so. By the time we got to, let's say, May, June even, if you look at the what we think are going to be the numbers for companies over the next 12 months, then it's hard for us again to see any great value. And I'll tell you why. You, when you, once you decrease the earnings, you have to decrease your expectations and where you want to own a company. And so we're, we have very, very few companies that really um, – fit into a category where we would want to start buying heavily. So that's, we're sort of like we were, we're just at a, a sort of a downslope revision of it from a year ago. Mm. And in these companies, have you seen, have their earnings stopped growing or you, have you seen decreases in their earnings or is it that you forecast that earnings will decrease or that their, sl- the, 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 their increase, their growth will itself slow? Well, if you just take, for example, the FANG stocks, you know, as a group, they were down 10% in earnings from, you know, from a year ago. So they were, 
that's the kind of thing you start to see. Now, we own other thing, a lot of other things besides we don't, that's not a big, big area for us. But I will say that what we're finding on companies in general is they're starting to announce now that we're not going to hit the number or they've decreased their expectations so people will think they beat the, beat the number when they really didn't. If you go back six months from then, you know, they, they didn't beat the number at all. Um, and that's where we are in this stage of things. And I think there's more of that to come. And so for us right now, what we'll do is we'll just, we're sort of uh, at, a, at a waited out type thing. I think people have to wait this market out or they'll make some mistakes. And, and Ted, um, when com- the com- let's take the FANGs, for example. With their earnings are down 10%, you said. How much of it is that their revenues decreased or slowed or and how much of it is that their costs increase and i asked that of course because that you know is emblematic of inflation which is a huge issue for investors and and consumers well i think the cost thing overall jack is happening to every company not not just those stocks but those stocks if you'll notice a lot of their advertising revenue is down a lot of the really just a lot of people going to their sites are down uh somewhat uh, and if you take, we don't own this stock, but if you take Netflix as an example, okay, people uh, go on, uh, they take the service, they watch the two shows they want to watch, and they drop it. And so, you know, it's that kind of thing where they can't really keep that consistency up. So I think that's where a lot of companies are headed in here, uh, where their numbers just won't match up. Thanks, Ted. And when you look at a company, you're looking at how much money it can make in the future. And so far, everything we've spoken about is about your estimates of that forward number. But then the value of that future money is based on interest rates, which you discount back into the the future. So how much of your outlook on stocks is shaped by the fact that last year in September of 2021, interest rates were effectively at zero and growth companies, you know, they could be worth a lot of money because a dollar in 2025 is almost worth a dollar in 2021. But now a dollar in 2025 is worth a lot less because interest rates are higher. How much does that factor into your analysis? Well, it factors in because if you look at a five-year growth rate, you're going to naturally discount it by, you know, you'll try to discount it by some inflation rate. What we usually do is discount it and then we'll try to take that present value number and buy below that number. So you have sort of a built-in two-way help on something. The problem about last year was they were so expensive, Jack, that it didn't make any difference what the interest rates were. Everything was so expensive, and if you even if you calculated a, a high earning rate for the next five years, you still couldn't make it work. And that's what we got into last year. Nobody could see it. I mean, they were all sort of drunk on the numbers, but that's where we were last year. Mm. Ted, what would it take for you to become constructive on stocks again and to be buying in size? Well, if they, you know, if they got cheap enough and we had the numbers, we would buy them. I mean, normally that doesn't come until you get to the low, the low end of a bear market normally. That's when your multiples, you know, let's say everybody's thinking that, okay, hey, we were at a 22 multiple and now we're at a, an 18 multiple. Well, we don't think we're in an 18 multiple. We think the multiple as you go forward over the next 12 months is much lower than that. So uh, um, I'm, I mean, much higher than that because the earnings are going to be down. But eventually, the prices will go down far enough to where you can make it work. We just don't think you can make it, make it work right now. Do you think that we're in a, bull, uh, a bear market in stocks and that the bear market will continue? Yes, I do. I mean, I, I, I'm sure everybody has their own point of view. But for us, 
one of the things that we say and right now is that, you know, if you look at the last 12 years, there's all these people in the industry that have never been through a slow burning bear market. I've been through a lot of them, a number of them. So what happens is um, they, you have a break, you have a rallies, and then they roll over and they go a long period of time with a drop. They don't just crash. They just eat away at you over time. And I think that's where we are now. And I, I'll, I really suspect that the next three to four quarters uh, will stay under pressure. I'm not saying you won't get any rallies. You certainly could. But I think uh, if you just look at the headwinds here, we're, we're going to be in a place where it's going to be tougher. How long do you think the bear market will last? And does it remind you of any periods you've seen throughout your career? Let's see. There's the 2008 bear market. There's the dot-com bust. Mm-hmm. And then there are many priors, which, which are also examples. Well, the difference between this and, say, 2008, for example, is this this market was a super bubble market. I've never seen as many things uh, in the last 18 months that were so expensive, and not just stocks, but I'm talking about bonds, private equity, private real real estate, you name it, facts, crypto, I could go down the list. Everything was in a bubble. And that's more like uh, 2000 or 1973, January, more like 1929, where you stay in the bear market longer than normal. I mean, the people that have been around this last decade, 10 or 12 years, only saw, they saw a bear market for about 40 days in March of 20. Yep. And so it's very hard for them to get their hands around this. And that is, okay, this could last a long time. And you can't, and they're all in the same mantra, which is, well, just keep on buying. Well, that will not work when you're in a, in a tough market. You're going to have to have some preservation. And that's where I think we are right now. Ted, earlier you referenced headwinds to stocks. If you had to say what the, the top three headwinds are for equities and risk assets in, in general, what would it be? Would it be uh, the economy? Would, would it be the Federal Reserve or, or something else? Well, the short term, Jack, would be Federal Reserve, yeah, because but I don't think that will be the long term. In the long run, I think it will be the economy because what will happen is you'll have somewhere along the line, you would have probably two quarters of, you know, reasonably significant downturn uh, where it would get into the, see, we haven't gotten into unemployment yet, but when unemployment starts rising, you get into real, that's when you're in a, in a real recession. And so we haven't gotten that yet. It's just barely touched it. But it's once that starts and gets deeper, then you're in a real recession. And then you're in a situation where companies are going to really have to adjust out earnings, et cetera. But that's what makes a low. I mean, it's, there's opportunity in that. I wouldn't necessarily be so negative about it. But I think you're going to have to get into that for a couple of quarters before before it's all over with, I would say. Ted, I don't disagree with your outlook on the economy, but it seems like the reason you're, you're projecting that earnings will decline is because you think the economy will slow. And it is slowing. The rate of growth is definitely slowing now. And we've had two consecutive quarters of uh, negative GDP growth on an inflation-adjusted basis. But uh, what uh, supports your view? Tell, tell us why you think that the economy going forward will be so bad. Well, there's a number of reasons, but one, I think housing hasn't really started to hammer it yet, but it will. And people forget about housing being really a major driver in the, in the economy. And so when you look at that, uh, with housing being a driver, it's just started to, to show. See, housing comes in late. 
it's a late indicator because it's slow. Uh, same way with employment. And so when housing comes in and gets weaker and weaker, which we think it will, we think it's just started. And when that happens and gets, you're going to get in a situation where people are locked in. In other words, they spent too much on a lot of different assets and particularly housing and real estate, and they can't, they can't be mobile with it. They can't move around because they're locked. And, you know, if I paid, if I'm a young person, I paid a million and a half dollars for a house, I leveraged it. And now, you know, I'm at a 3% rate on, say, a big mortgage, but I want to sell it now to somebody. They're going to have to have a 5% mortgage. Mm-hmm. You're going to pay me less money. Maybe I can move out of it. Maybe I couldn't. I mean, see, all those things are ahead, and we haven't really gotten to that, but we're getting there. Uh, we haven't gotten to that point, uh, but that'll be that'll be the first thing. Second thing will be unemployment. You know that'll go higher, and then all of those things lead into people buying less and mm-hmm. doing less and going less, and that's where it gets into the companies. Mm-hmm. And what sectors do you think will be the hardest hit as people buy less and, and spend less? Well, everybody owned tech. Uh, high tech and they, you know, they, they owned it, especially, you know, there's 10 or 12 stocks that they all own and everybody owned them. Um, those will be hit harder. I think, I think those will, will stay under pressure as you go along. I think a lot of that has to be wrung out of the market. And then you had so many companies, Jack, that really didn't make any money. Some didn't even have any revenues Oh yeah. and people are hung up in them. And I think all of that has to be wrung out. You already see it in the SPAC market, you know, you see so many SPACs that are down 90, 90, 95%. I think that's started, that'll, that's, that's a big hit. Probably crypto has a long way to go, but all of those speculative excesses will have to be wrung out of the market till you get to a point where people are just basically disgusted. That's when you get a low. <laughs> and you think we're, we're nowhere close to people being disgusted now? I don't think so. I think it's a, I think it's a way and you've got a longer to go. I, I should say maybe, you know, it could be wrong. It could maybe there's a saving grace out there. I don't know. But if you look at Europe and the far East, and uh, you know, if you look what's going on, um, you know, it could be a tough winter for a lot of situations. And so I, I, I can't see that right now. Yes. And so uh, because of what's going on in Europe, natural gas prices, energy prices, but particularly natural gas prices are very elevated. And of course, that is an input to inflation. So if the economy slows, but inflation remains high because it's uh, from supply side factors, the Federal Reserve might not cut interest rates. So is that something you're worried about where the economy slows, we're in a recession, but the Federal Reserve does not ease? The Federal Reserve is not going to come in as a superhero to save the day as it has over the past, uh, you know, over a decade since the great financial crisis. Well, they talk a big game and, you know, we don't really and never have really believed anything the Fed says. I mean, if you look at their track record, it's very, very poor. And so people that want to get around and talk about the Fed, I'm not certain why, because if you look at what goes on, there's nothing there would lead you to believe they can give you any insight to what's really going to happen. But having said that, I think what would happen is, and this is where uh, you can't believe them. Let's just say that all of that happened and the market gets down 40 or 50%. I doubt seriously at that point that they're going to keep really keep, keep their, their foot on the, on the, on the gas here. I, I doubt it. I'm not saying they wouldn't, but it would take, it'd be really unusual for them to, because by that time, everything would really be falling apart. So I, I can't see them doing that, even though oil, I will grant you, is an outlier because, um, 
If you look at Russia, which controls a lot of oil, if they want to cut back on that oil, they can really move that price a lot and really put a lot of people in trouble. So I, I don't know where that ends up. It, uh, oil is certainly something you have to look at the next five years. Yes. Yeah, so. Uh, you are in Texas, so you're definitely a lot closer to the oil industry than I am uh, here in Manhattan, New York. What are you seeing there? You know, everyone can look at a chart and see the price of oil exploded higher uh, earlier this year after having risen steadily in 2021 and 2020, after having gone negative in 2020, and since then falling. Uh, are oil companies, you know, I don't know how, how close you follow the oil companies, but are they increasing production uh, or are they they not? Because a lot of folks are saying, hey, these companies, they can't get debt because of ESG concerns. And so they're not going to be as uh, willing or able to increase production as they have historically. Well, it's sort of a two-edged sword right now, Jack. What happens on the oil side probably is happening is that, you know, it's starting to discount uh, a recession or a slower economy. And that doesn't mean long-term it's not a great buy. But in the short run, that's what it looks like to us. On the other side, you look at natural gas, and a lot of companies are producing more natural gas because it's in the U.S. It's around 850 and MCF, so you know they're starting to produce. They like to produce at that level, and we've got a lot of gas, so they you know they have a tendency to do that. Oil, I think you know they I think they'll produce as much as they can, but um, you know it's a slow process, and they've had them out of the market for finding oil now for a couple of years because of uh, this administration has been the one that really. Uh, unfortunately, has really you know, beat the oil companies up. And so they've had a tendency not to be as aggressive. Um, but I think one of these days they will have to be because you'll run, you, you're going to get, you're going to get in a situation where you need more oil. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think Europe is definitely in an energy crisis with you know, natural gas prices in Europe, 10 to 20 times higher than they, they normally are during a cycle and yet literally 10 to 20 times higher. Um, so uh, are you seeing any opportunities there where either investing in hydrocarbon companies, uh, coal, natural gas, oil, or on the green energy, you know, wind and solar, or is that not really a sector that, that you uh, pay much attention to? Well, you know, for us, there's nothing for us right now to do. We think a better buy would be eventually to buy the oil, not necessarily for Europe, though. I think they're so far behind on what they're doing. Um, you know, you've now look at Germany, they've reversed themselves on the nuclear and you've got, you're, you know, you're starting to see, you're starting to see them think about, Hey, you know, in this idea that they're going to cap, uh, the Russian oil price. I mean, it's a far flung idea. Now maybe they get, maybe they can make it happen through their insurance companies. I don't know, but I do know this. If they start to play hardball like that, um, it's probably going to be more damaging to them than it would be Russia in the long run. So I, we don't see anything there that we want to oh, in that part of the world that we want to do right now. Um, mm -hmm. In the U.S., uh, we own, you know, we own oil. We own natural gas pipelines, that sort of thing. Um, just had one of our companies get bought out today, uh, Brigham oh, Minerals. Yeah. So um, Brigham's a stock that we own for really for a number of years now. It's it's a great, you know, great royalty company, but that's, that's the kind of thing you have to find what you want to own and, and really get the price you want. But I think, I think, uh, think there we have some opportunity in that, but you're going to have to get through weaker economic times first, I think. Mm -hmm. And is it, is it different now? Um, Cause I know during the, the shale boom of let's say 2009 to 2014, 
uh, production of natural gas exploded higher and it was a quote success in that regard. But on the investment side, a lot of companies lost money, even as prices were pretty high and eventually went bankrupt. Is it different now when you know, pretty much no matter what oil or natural gas company you look at, they are printing money, uh, so to speak, you know, just, you know, many of them trading at 10 or even five price to earnings ratios. Uh, and also, do you, do you expect that to continue? Well, what happened back then was uh, if you look at those companies and a lot of the industry, including the MLP business, by the way, in the first, de- you know, first decade of the 20, 2000, 2010 or 12, uh, you know, they had too much debt. And that really, that caused a shakeup in the industry, not only the producers, but for the pipelines, because they had to, some companies you know, didn't make it because of that. And that's what happened. Now, there are a few companies that still have quite a bit of debt, but Generally, they've been able to manage that pretty well, and I think uh, those companies, they'll continue to do well. And you might even see um, more companies buying each other up because they can see how, hey, we we need to grab these companies while we can still get the reserves. Mm-hmm. So, Ted, it sounds like there are a lot of things that do not attract you at this this moment in the, in the stock market and other assets. So where are you, where are you putting your money? Where are you putting your clients' money? Well, we have a mix right now. If you look at, uh, you know, we have three strategies, but if I'll just take the most conservative strategy, which is really just called conservative income. And we have probably um, 75% of that strategy is uh, within 36 months or so of maturity. Mm-hmm. And we had a lot of, we got a lot of heat for that last year, but we felt that's where we should be going with it because we could see rates were going going to rise. And so, you know, you can get some really great yields right now on six months, 12 months, 18 months U.S. Treasuries. And secondly, uh, we do have, you know, we have a seven or eight position and uh, percent position in the longer bonds. Uh, we won't add to that right here, but we've always had it, you know, on the outside. And then in between, we own a number of things that pay some really great cash flows in, uh, in that strategy. And we have another strategy called high income. We own a lot of the uh, great preferreds and some convertible mm-hmm. preferreds. Um, you know, we're getting six, six and a quarter, six and a half percent on all of those. We own um, a couple of medical REITs uh, that are really great yields for us. Um, uh, we own a good, well, we own a good convenience store REIT that does well for us. And all in all, we, we try to pick and choose. We have about, you know, we have a small percentage, four uh, percent or so in gold miners and gold. And um, that's where we are in sort of in those two categories. And the stock side, you know, there's still some stocks that we think we own and we think they'll do reasonably well. We have about, we only have about, we're only about 48% invested in stocks right now. But if you look at what we do own, you know, we own Visa, MasterCard. Those are kind of companies that will continue to do okay, even in rough times. People will continue to use the cards, do things along that line. O'Reilly Automotive. We, We have a lot of things. We try to buy things that you you're going to use no matter what uh, during this period. So that's sort of where we are at this point. So payment companies, MasterCard, automotive, uh, what else do you see as not recession proof, but recession resistant uh, sectors or stocks? Well, if you get, if you get the right real estate and you have to be, when I say the right real estate, it has to be, it has to be the parts of the market where you know that they're going to need what you have. That's why we have, primary medical. Um, we don't see, but if you use demographics and you use the things that go into that, we think that's an area that, that while it could be s- somewhat affected, it's usually not affected much. 
you don't find many uh, physicians' offices closing down because times are tough and that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. we, you know, that's an area we really still like. We obviously think that's fine. If you look at natural gas pipelines, you know, their throughput is is there no matter what. So, I mean, you're going to burn natural gas. You may be burning it at $5 an MCF or $10 an MCF, but you're still burning it. And that's that's why we like that group quite a bit. In the common stock area, what happens is um, a lot of the growth stocks that, you know, we might look at and want to see, you know, it could, maybe this company could grow at 15% or 16, 18% what we would like for it to. We've had to reduce those down. And when you reduce them down, you've got to buy them cheaper. Uh, and that's where we are. We'll buy the energies again, too. We own them now. I mean, you know, um, the energies. But we'll, we'll, we'll see where it goes from here. Mm. How are you thinking about credit risk? So you said you have a conservative income fund. You have a lot of six-month, 12-month treasuries. That yeah. is essentially a risk-free treasury because the treasury will not default. Uh, you know, there can be inflation, but it will not default, unlike a private company. Mm-hmm. What about those uh, you know, high-yield investment-grade bonds or maybe commercial paper? Are, are you uh, seeing any opportunities there now that the yields are higher? And also, can you comment on the spreads, uh, that is, the yield minus the treasury, so the spread relative on top of the treasuries? Mm-hmm. Have those widened uh, to a level that you're, into, in, you're attracted to them? Well, they have, they have widened, um, Jack. But what happens is, and we've always tried to mention this to people, when you're buying high yield or what we call junk debt, it really equates to the same as a stock. So you don't buy that until you get a low in the market because it's just going to keep on going down. And there's a lot of those companies that won't pay. The spreads will keep on widening, and so you get into trouble. I think where the value lies is in the municipal market. If you look at a municipal curve right now of yields, uh, there's a lot of yield out there that's over the treasury yield. Not not in the one and two and three year, but you get out a little bit further, say, you know, eight to 15, that kind of thing. Be surprised at how much more the treasury, the, those municipal yields are over. And I'm high grade too. I'm talking about yeah. really high grade paper. Um, so I'd rather go that way than be in trying to pick and choose in the corporate area when I know they can have trouble and not be backed up. Understood. So the reason that uh, municipals can be attractive is that some of them are exempt from certain taxes. So if a a yield is higher than a treasury and you have to pay taxes on a treasury, but you don't on a a municipal, that is significant, something to pay attention to. Uh, Ted, another thing in the fixed income universe is mortgage-backed securities. Uh, Some people may hear it as a dirty word because they think of those sort of private label, subprime, extremely risky Securities that you know were essentially at the at the downfall of the uh, global economy in, in two thousand eight, but you know now the vast majority of the market is uh, um, securitized by uh, Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, um, and the real risk there is interest rate risk, not credit risk. Of course, interest rate risk can be huge, um, but you know a lot of these securities are yielding a significant premium above the Treasury yields. What opportunities are you seeing in the mortgage backed securities market? Well, we don't see any right now, Jack. The one thing, you know, we've always traded in, in the Jenny May market more than uh, Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. Uh, they're okay now because the government's involved with them. A lot of people lost a lot of money, though, back, you know, in, uh, in 07, 08, and 09 because they were in that marketplace with those two. But for us, uh, when we want to buy mortgage backs is when we feel like that you're going into a lower interest rate environment. 
and I don't think people realize this, but if you take a group of mortgage-backed securities and rates keep going up, that means people never pay those loans off. So you can't use an, what is a normal def- definition of where maybe an average maturity may be. So that's the problem in a rising rate environment. That keeps getting extended. We'd rather buy the mortgage backs in a declining rate environment for this reason. We want to get paid off every month or every quarter with more paper. In other words, it keeps us walking, you know, it keeps us really a little shorter term. And that's where we head with those. We were not doing any of that right now. Mm. Ted, for the vast majority of the past, the prior decade, after the great financial crisis, for much of it, I should say, inflation was just below 2%, so basically at 2%, and risk-free yields, particularly on the shorter end of the curve, like the Fed funds rate, were effectively at 0%. In the next decade, uh, longer term, where do you see inflation and where do you see risk-free rates? Is is 4% inflation the new 2% and is 2% Fed funds the new zero? Well, you would have to think that we would not go through a period, Jack, like you just mentioned, where, you know, the Fed did such a disservice during that 10 or 12 year period to everyone, really, by keeping those rates there. And obviously, again, a totally irresponsible Fed and and, and fiscal government, too, if you want to get right down to it. But the problem with that is now we're paying the price for it. So we probably will not go back to that again. I doubt seriously. Uh, and people will say, well, you know, we're not going to have eight and a half or nine percent inflation, but we'll have five or six. Well, five or six will be a different investment world than what it is, what it has been the last 10 years. So I, I, I think you will get to levels that you won't go below. I'll be surprised if you go below that because they've just pushed too much money out there. And uh, as Milton Friedman would say, the only person that can create inflation is the government because they yes. put money. And that's where we are. That, that is a great uh, quote of, of Milton Friedman. Um, so if 5% inflation, 6% inflation is the new 2%, where should interest rates be? Uh, you know, Right now, I think the Fed funds rate is at 225 basis points. Uh, that's a pretty big delta. If, if inflation, long-term inflation is at 6% and interest rates are only at you know, barely above 2%, uh, you know, what are you, what's your outlook on uh, short-term interest rates, let's say the two-year, as well as the 10-year t- the treasury? Well, if you take the effective Fed funds rates, probably around 230 or 240, the stated rate would be 250, and they're going to probably raise it, let's say they raise it three quarters this month to uh, three and a quarter. Uh, there has to be a point to where your Fed funds rate and your inflation rate are fairly close, okay? Now, I don't know where that is. I don't know where that equi- equilibrium is, but it's somewhere, uh, and it's probably not going to be at two. You know, more than likely, it, it might be here. It, might, it could be four, it could be five, I don't know. But there has to be a point where everything adjusts to that level, and that just means that it'll be tougher for stock prices, you know, tougher for bond prices. For that matter, you'll have to know what you own. But I suspect that somewhere going forward, they will have a different kind of world. And we'll have a, it doesn't have to be runaway inflation, mm-hmm. but it has to be something that, is higher than what we saw in the last 10 years. Right. So 4% Fed funds rate, perhaps even higher than that. Ted, earlier on in this interview, you did say that if the stock market was down 40 or 50%, you f- you find it unlikely that the Federal Reserve will keep their foot on the gas, I think is the exact phrase you used. Uh, mm-hmm. By foot on the gas, do you mean continue to hike interest rates or do you actually mean just hold them level? In, in other words, uh, are they going to take their foot off the gas pedal or are they going to hold them at 4%? You know. 
higher for longer? Or, or do you think there's going to cut as the Fed funds futures markets indicate it might? You know, I think, Jack, they're in a spot like we were. If you look at the at the late at the late 60s, where they had spent so much money on the wars and really we produced all this money in the economy. So when we got into the 70s and you look at the Federal Reserve at that time, they started doing what this one's doing. They lower the rates and they had to raise the rates and they lower the rates. And finally, after really after 10 years, uh, eight to 10 years, they had to really raise aggressively to try to break the back. And I don't know that that's where we are now, but I do think we have a Fed that's similar to those 70s where they juice it, back it off, put more in, back it off. Uh, they don't they don't really know. That's the problem. And you have all these people with that group that uh, none of them have any experience on Main Street. So yeah, that's they just they just go along with the PhDs that are in the in the ivory tower. So right. uh, that's that's sort of my thoughts on where they'll be headed. Ted, it sounds like your review, your review of the Federal Reserve's performance uh, in the prior decade is quite low. Would you give the Federal Reserve slightly higher marks over the past nine months as the Fed, as they kind of imply that they admit they were very behind the curve, but having been so far behind the curve, they have tightened monetary policy dramatically, both by actually hiking interest rates and doing quantitative tightening, as well as sort of jawboning the market down and saying that how much they will in the future, a technique called forward guidance, which is the, the name of this podcast. Uh, so would you give the Federal Reserve slightly higher marks over the past nine months uh, or, or not? Probably not. I mean, if you look <laughs> at the last 20 years, this is a whole group of people. They were unelected, by the way. These are not elected people that have caused a lot of trouble for uh, this country and really for the economy. And if you look at the last nine months, just think about it, uh, what, you know, what, what's going on with them. Uh, they're really hanging their head on unemployment, and they're tightening into already a recession. They're tightening into slower times, which is really reverse of what you should be doing. I and mean, we've never seen that before. And so you can tell that... Um, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing. And so, no, I wouldn't give them any, I wouldn't give them any accolades. Uh, I, I'm I hate to be so negative on them, but I mean, they've just, yeah. you know, look at, I, I, I could be, I could go back and show you 20 years worth of what the Fed has said and each Fed president. And then, and I'm, I could give you 15, 20 statements they've made that are completely, completely false. And so we'll have to just see. Mm-hmm. How much of that, Ted, is because they make public statements with predictions about an unknowable future? So, of course, there will be many, many instances that they are wrong. I would put, you know, let's say a sell-side uh, research banker who is asked about what their outlook is on unemployment and interest rates. They're going to be wrong a lot too, right? They are, but, you know, if you look at, first of all, if you look at most of the Fed presidents, they should basically muzzle them and say, hey, you can't be out there talking because they'll want to throw in and get interviewed and have this, that, and the other. And most of them really don't have an idea. They just don't seem to be tied into what's going on on Main Street. I mean, that, that's that's the problem, and it's always been the problem. And so, hmm. you know, they get a lot of information given, a lot of data given to them, but they have, you know, when it comes to empirical evidence, hey, let's go down, let's walk down the street and talk to some people, some businesses. They never get there. Yeah. Ted, I look at... There's sort of two types of central bankers. There's uh, the uh, Alan Greenspan type where they do not really like to communicate at all. You know, and then they don't tell journalists anything. They don't tell the public anything. It's all behind closed doors in their ivory tower. And journalists have nothing to talk about except how big his briefcase is. And perhaps that contains some hint of what, what is to come. 
uh, and I, I believe uh, it was uh, 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 Montague Norman, uh, very who, uh, a track a central banker from Britain who has a very poor track record uh, during the Great Depression. He said, uh, uh, "Never exp- uh, never explain." Essentially, the, the public is not owed an explanation. I view that on one side as a style of central banking. I view another as what the Federal Reserve does now, where, as you say, they do speak to the public a lot. They do give interviews. They do share what they're thinking, even if, as they admit, they don't know what the future can, uh, will hold, uh, because, of course, no one can know what the future can hold. Which style do you think is better, sort of the the maestro, where it's uh, Alan Greenspan just not really telling us anything, or is it Jay Powell, where he's communicating, or perhaps, as you think, over-communicating? Well, the only the Fed governor, you know, if, if, you, if, if you look if looking back, really, Volcker was the was the only Fed governor I thought really did it correctly, which was, we're not going to tell you a whole lot. We're just going to take care of what we should take care of. And one of the things that I think they miss is that they, they forget to talk about the money. So, you know, how much money's out there, what goes on. And of course, they dare not say back to Congress, for example, hey, fiscal policy, hey, we need some here, okay? Um, we need you to take a stand on a couple of things. That never happens either. So I don't think it makes a lot of difference, really, um, because a lot of times they'll say what they're going to do, and they don't do it anyway. So, you know, uh, just look at last year, all year. It's transitory. It's transitory. It's going to be okay. And, of course, all the while, it was building right underneath them, and they couldn't see it. So we'll see what happens. Right. Uh, Ted, this is getting a little in the weeds, but how do you think about the money supply? There are different monetary aggregates, M0, M1, M2, and all of them have their advantages and disadvantages. Um, you know, uh, h- how do you sort of think about the money supply? And I'll perhaps, I'll give you a critique that I have, and I want to hear what you think of it, is that let's say, let's look at M2. It kind of gives the Federal Reserve too much credibility because it shows that you know, M2 increased uh, a huge amount during 2020 and 2021. And no doubt a lot of that was money printing, but you know, quantitative easing is not does not really change the comp, the the quantity of money in the system. It just changes the composition of money, right? Because you're putting reserves in, but you're taking treasuries out. So, yeah, how how are you sort of thinking about the the money supply? Um, yeah, you know, it's not something we. That's not from an investment standpoint. That's not what we do. Spend a lot of time on. We look at it, you know, see what's going on with it, but it's not what we spend a lot of time. Our problem with the Fed over that two-year period was is that they didn't they did not need to buy that much paper. Number one, they did not need to keep the rates that low, and so they just created this incredible bubble of people borrowing money, and uh, and they put a floor under things so that nobody was afraid to do anything, and they should have let the risk run, because that's what really creates a thriving economy. You get rid of the weak hands, and we went through a period, a long period, where there were no weak hands because they took care of everything. And so they had enough money to keep that going. I have a reasonable level of confidence in your bearish view on risk assets, uh, stocks, uh, uh, sort of high beta stocks, uh, other sorts of risk assets. Can, uh, can you tell us what is your level of confidence and perhaps relative to prior, you know, your three decade experience in the markets? Have there been other times where you've been more uh, convinced uh, that, that stocks are going down? And, and what does the comparison look like? Well, this one I have to compare to uh, late 99 and early 2000. I mean, that that's to me the same. This, that's where you have these super bubbles. Everything is just totally expensive. The thing about 08 was it was caused by, it really was caused by one group, and that was the housing subprime area. There were a lot of value things that were still looked okay at that time. But now 
And over the last two years, everything got expensive, much like it was in 99, 2000. It's probably, it's actually worse than it was then. I can, I think there's only been maybe four or five super bubbles in 120 years. And that, you know, 29, like I said, 73, 2000, this was one. And it takes, when you get something like that and people do the craziest thing and pay the craziest prices for things that don't matter, then it just takes a long time to wring it out. And so I think I'd have to compare this one more to um, 2000. I, I wasn't in the market in January 73, but I was in the market in 75 and 76. And we had you know, tough times with inflation. And so, you know, in the late 70s up through 82, we had every year we'd have a 20, 25% sell-off and they would rally back and that kind of thing. We had a lot of inflation. So it was a tougher time. But this one is more of a bubble look. Uh, if you just take, uh, and, and one of the things I see is that people are still in denial on cryptocurrencies, on SPACs, on all these companies that have no revenue, that don't make any money. Well, they're going to come back. Well, you don't come back from nothing. <laughs> in my market letter last month, I wrote a little piece that said, nothing from nothing leaves nothing. Well, that's true. Um, and that, that hasn't happened yet. I think you have to get to the point where they just throw it in and say, you know what, I'm done. And I, I don't, we don't see that yet. You, in July, interesting, the meme stocks, everything just came right back as if nothing happened. Yes, I com- I'm completely with you on the profitless, even in some cases, revenue-less companies. Uh, many of them are SPACs. They're, you really can't put a floor on them. You can't say, oh, it's down 75%, so it's, it's bottoms. Like there's no floor because you can't assess, assess how can you put a value on a company that is not going to even make any revenue until 2025. Um, Ted, as you, as you might surmise, I'm, uh, I, I find a lot in your argument uh, about that risk assets going down. It's a bad macro environment for, for risk assets and, and stocks. Uh, I, I find, I personally find that very compelling, but just to, for the sake of argument, I, I want to ask you if in a year, let's say in September, 2023, the S&P 500 is higher than it is now at, let's say, 4,400 or even 5,000, um, you know, because there is a chance that, it, uh, that that happens. Why do you think that will have happened and uh, how will that have differed from your current thesis? Well, if that happens, it would have to been something where um, they've got a handle on inflation, interest rates quit going up. Uh, companies, you know, started making more money or seeing that they were going to make more money. Um, and, and you had a period where you'd already gone through, let's say, higher unemployment. Now it's going back the other way. You're starting to employ people and that sort of thing. And so that's what happens. That's what happens at lows in the market. You, that When you go forward, that especially the first, in the money really, a lot of money's made in the first one or two years of a off a market low. And I don't think people understand that a lot of times because they haven't had to spend a lot of time on a market low the last 10 years because of the Fed. But but when you go through a true bear market, when you get to the end, that creates tremendous opportunity usually. And maybe right. one of the best buying opportunities. So what would be happening then would be all of that would be in the past. And maybe uh, maybe we're seeing some, you know, some sunlight out there. And that I'm not saying it wouldn't happen. And of course, I have to tell you, Jack, um, man, I've been wrong so many times in the business that I, I can't count. Um, so I could, it could very well be wrong. Again, I will say this, though. We adjust. And one of the things we really believe in is we've made an error, and we've made a lot of them. Um, we make an adjustment. 
uh, and try to move with it if we can. I think that's the mark of a good money manager is you have to be able to say, I didn't, you know, we didn't look at that correctly uh, and we need to make a change. And I think that's, uh, that's what we would do if we saw that for sure. Mm. You, you said the uh, most money can be made uh, come in the months and years coming out of a bear market uh, that is coming out from the bottom in, in risk assets. How do you know when risks will have bottomed? What are signals you are you, your, your team are preparing for when you know you have a checklist of oh this happened oh this happened we're pretty close to a bottom it's time to start deploying capital or is it more subjective? No, it's uh, it's it's both really. But I, I would tell you that one of the things we use technicals for is on the when you get into lows in the market. And what we look for is, you know, what will happen in those cases, your multiples will be uh, compressed, you'll have low multiples, your price to book will be down, it won't be like it has been in the last two or three years, price to sales will be down, you know, at good levels and that sort of thing. You'll start to see uh, valuations like, you know, we'll look at something and say, you know, that company's worth a lot of money, but uh, it has to be unwound in here, I have to see it. You'll see a lot of things that show up like that. On the other side, most bear markets will come with uh, the latter part of it being in a short period of time. They get real aggressive on the downside. People just throw in. And we have a number of technical things we use to look at that. We'll know when <clears throat> there's when you get to a point where you have, you know, 10, 15, 20 to 1 downside, you know, you're getting to a point where everybody's throwing everything away. We We look at the technicals too. That's not what we trade on. But I mean, we'll use it though at bottom lows at that time. Very interesting. Well, uh, Ted, it's been a pleasure having you on Forward Guidance. Thanks so much for, for sharing your insights. Is there a parting message you, you wish to uh, leave my audience with? Well, I guess my parting message, Jack, would be this. Um, we could very well be wrong that it's going to be a tougher time the next two to four quarters. No question about it. And I, I, I would say that you don't have to believe me on that. I, we're, we're not infallible. But what if we're right? Okay, and I always use this as an example to say, well, if you're wrong, you can make an adjustment and get money into the market over the, you know, in, in time. You don't have to stay in cash. But if we're right and you do have liquidity and you've got some preservation of capital, it does set you up to where it gives you a lot of choices on what to do, say, you know, nine to 12 months from now. And so that's the way I would recommend it to people to look at. I, I don't think you have to be all in or all out, but I do think you should have some of your capital in a preservation mode. And that would be my advice to you. Yes. Yeah, so if your bear market, um, you know, uh, uh, if your bearish view doesn't come to hold, but stocks flatline or grind higher, you know, very slowly, you can still get back into the market. I guess the only scenario that would be, be quite adverse uh, uh, for your positioning would be uh, a melt-up market where you know the S and P five hundred goes up four percent a week uh, over the next year. Uh, I, be, I I sounds like based on your analysis, you think that that is extremely unlikely because that did happen in March twenty twenty, right? Well, it happened in March twenty twenty because of the Fed, not because of anything else. It wasn't, right. yeah, um, yeah. you know, it wasn't any there was any reason for that other than the fact if you if if you produce enough money. Uh, to buy something, you're going to get back into it. And I don't see that happening again, though. I think they realize that the era of that, and I'd be surprised if that, really surprised that that happened again. So I don't I don't see any sort of a melt-up. And typically, 
off of a low and bear market, it's a gradual thing. And people look up and say, no, we're not going up. We're not going, but you keep on going up. <laughs> and then by the time you get out a year and a half or two years, they, oh, we're in a, we're in a bull market. But, you know, if you left the first 25 or 30% on the table. Um, but that, I, that's usually the way they happen. We'll see if it happens that way this time. Well, Ted, thanks again. Uh, folks can find you on Twitter at Oxbow underscore advisors. And you are also the uh, author of the book, Your Money Mentality, How You Feel About Risks, Risk, Losses, and Gains. Thanks again, Ted. Thank you, Jack. There is something that you need to be doing right now, and that is reading the BlockWorks daily newsletter. For top market insights and the latest in crypto news, you have to subscribe to the BlockWorks daily newsletter, and you can do so by clicking on the link in the description to this video or by visiting blockworks.co forward slash newsletter.